Are you a classically compulsive drink-tumbling klutz? Do you use enough paper towels to wipe out a Costa Rican rainforest? Well, do we have- Okay, no, sorry, no. We are not gonna sell you a ShamWow because believe it or not, ShamWow does not need our help. ShamWow has sold over 45 million units and the company is now worth half a billion dollars. And that is with a B. But why is that? Well, chances are you've seen the infamous infomercial starring that spiky-haired Vince, and maybe you've even seen a parody or two poking fun at the absurdity of the content. It's kind of a relic of our pop culture that's been ingrained into our collective psyche, but there is some serious mastery going on here. They're linking a core desire to what's called a happening. And the happening is the how. How, as a product, are you different? And this how pushes you to burrow into the consciousness of your prospect in a way that differentiates you from everyone else and convinces them to buy. No one out there teaches marketing lessons like this better than Ryan Dice. He's the founder and CEO of digitalmarketer.com. He's developed world-class certifications and courses that consistently create stellar marketers and helped many others figure out the quote-unquote happenings. It's with his expertise that you can find out how to connect your customer's core desire to a perfect, delicious hook. We're going to go deep here and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Ryan Dice talks about marketing. We're going to cover the accidental entrepreneur, the desire for elevated status, selling transformation or identity reinforcement, the cyclical nature of marketing, and the frequency required for messaging breakthrough. What'd you learn from your first job? I learned, so my very first job, I was literally digging ditches on a tree farm. And I think what I learned is that I'm not well suited for manual labor. And uh, (laughs) I always sought out um, a way to not have to do that. Um, And so I think that's, you know, I was fortunate when I went to, uh, I started school at the University of Texas in 1999. And that was like the year after they installed high speed internet at the dorms. So it's like, I got to figure out this computer stuff because like, I'm in air conditioning. I also wasn't very good at programming, but um, or anything like that. But I found I was pretty good at marketing. So that was like my first job, you know, ever. My first like quote unquote real job working in an office and for a company was in financial services. And in that, I I learned because they wanted me to do sales. So they were like, make a hundred dollars a day, and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> I hate this so much. And um, so I was like, what can I do to make it to where I don't have to call people? How do I get them to call me? instead. And so and what I did is I wrote a letter and I, I took that list of people that I was supposed to call because there were addresses too. And I sent this letter that I wrote to all of them saying, basically, give me a call. I've got this cool report. I'd love to tell you about it. And, um, you know, shockingly, uh, a handful of them called me back and I was able to book some appointments. And I remember my branch manager, you know, being really ticked off and saying like, Hey, you're not doing your calls. You're not hitting your numbers. I'm like, yeah, but I'm getting, I'm getting more meetings than anybody else. So if I'm getting the result, why doesn't that matter? And he's like, well, it it matters. And so um, I learned there that there's a lot of people in companies and a lot of people in this world who are more interested in the process and in checking boxes than they are with the actual result. That was the day I decided I could no longer work for anybody else. I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's super. It's it's like one of those things where uh, I think most founders, most execs, like they have a story like that because you're kind of like, 
you're butting up against your limits until you figure out where you can like go seamlessly or with as little friction as possible. Well, I, was, I think that is why a lot of people wind up starting their own companies. So thinking about entrepreneurs, there's a lot of accidental entrepreneurs out there who they didn't necessarily set out to be an entrepreneur. It was like their only option because they just kept getting you know, fired or pushed out of companies. So what you realize at some point is you have to become somewhat closer to that thing that you hated. I think that making that adjustment and pivot can be tough. No, totally. What's the hardest piece of feedback you've received in your career so far? I remember the very first time I, I spoke on a stage at a conference. I thought I did a really good job and I prepared and worked really hard for it. And I remember afterwards, everybody clapped. And then this one guy walked up to me um, and I learned he was from Australia. And he came up and he said, hey, you know, that was shit, right? Um, and if you've ever heard an Australian say the word shit, you can't even be offended. They say it so like succinctly. It's so just precise and almost beautiful. And I just remember being like utterly crushed and destroyed and thinking, you know, I'll never speak again. But to his credit, he's like, look, you know, I, I can tell that you tried, but here's some things to keep in mind. And, um, and I remember it was brutal feedback from somebody I did, did not know did not know at all. Um, so that was kind of the most critical feedback I've received in terms of the speaking side of a lot of what I do. On the business side, I remember walking into, there was like this mastermind that was going on of all these other like really like smart people running much bigger companies than I was. And I felt like I needed to come in with this, like with all these ideas and like I needed to prove that I belonged. And so I walk into this room and and they're going around the room and it's like, share your best ideas. And so I'm, I, I didn't just bring one. I brought like 10. And so I'm just like, oh, and I'm just thinking I'm, I'm crushing life. And I remember the guy who was running it, he looked at me, he went, have you actually done any of these things? Uh, and I was like, oh, n no, but like, you know, I know people who have and didn't. He's like, don't ever come into this room again until you're ready to bring ideas that you, based on work that you have done. I don't want to hear about ideas that other people have done. We can read blog posts too. And again, it was like, oh man. Um, but that's one of the reasons, you know, at, at Digital Marketer, our whole thing is like, we, we do it first. Like, so we don't get into research. Um, we don't get into the quant side. Not there's anything wrong with that, but that was such a thing. It's like, I have to do it first and I'm just going to say what happened. Like I did this thing and it happened good, bad, and ugly. But those two things, I remember the moment. I remember the looks on people's faces. I remembered exactly where I was sitting or standing. Those were pretty brutal, but accurate, very accurate. Yeah. Well, you're a fantastic speaker. I'll just throw that out there now. So you you definitely learn from that feedback. So I've seen you speak a number of times, and it's it's, it's always great. So hopefully that fired you up. <laughs> it's there's something about doing doing something poorly long enough, and eventually you figure it out. Um, yeah, if you can well, just kind of power through the trough, test and test and test, right? Mm -hmm. What did your parents do for a living, and what did you learn from that? My mom was a, well, my mom did a lot of things. So let me talk about my, my dad. Uh, so my dad was an electrician and um, him just hard work um, and, and really just kind of loyalty and contentment. I mean, he's a guy that could show up and do the same thing every day. And what I knew is I didn't have that. I admired it in him, but I knew I didn't have it. And so from him, I learned that people who are not like me who have that are, are great uh, and, and I should look to align myself with them because they're good people to have on the team. But I, I can very quickly see that I'm not my dad in that way. Love my dad. Um, have a great relationship with my father. But truly, the guy has worked fundamentally the same job for as long as I've lived and, and has no desire to end. Could eat at the same restaurant, you know, all the time. Just that level. It's like, 
I don't understand it, but it works for him. So I learned appreciating the skills of others as a result to building a team from him. My stepdad, because um, my, my parents divorced when I was about two and a half, which was fine. They got along pretty well. But um, but my stepdad, I learned he was almost like a, a counter mentor because he was someone who was very much like, you know, if you put in the hours and if you do this thing and if you save enough, then eventually like you can retire. And he was just miserable, like just generally kind of like this miserable human being who was discontent. So uh, the whole time with him is like, I just want to do the opposite of everything that he does. I think it's important. Like having mentors in your life is good. Having people who, you know, you see and you're like, I don't want to be like them. There's something he said for just doing the opposite. Uh, and then my mom, she must have had 30 or 40 different jobs or careers throughout my childhood. I mean, she sold like beepers and then started her own like pager company. Um, I mean, she was always hustling, always selling stuff and always making it work. And I think I, I learned kind of, you know, hustle and a willingness to kind of pivot and linger in uncertainty and ambiguity from her. That's wild. You just described my childhood as well. My dad's yeah. a tenor, uh, so trades guy, eats Caesar salads for 80% of his meals. Uh, like just like very much like very, very similar to your dad. My mom was the one who started the business, you know, did a bunch of the entrepreneurial stuff. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. I think there's, there's probably something there in like the blue collar parents becoming entrepreneur, that type of thing. Yeah. And it, 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 it freaks me out a little bit cause I got four kids. Right. So it's like, you know, I knew I wanted more than, than what I had. And, and so it's always that like struggle, you know, when you have kids and, and you came from less and now you have more. And so your kids are the beneficiary of the more like, do you, you know, do you seek to reduce their lifestyle or, or make it into something that, uh, that it isn't so that they can have kind of the same thing. I, I don't really have a good, you know, answer to that. It's something that I definitely struggle with, but I am thankful. I mean, I even think, you know, my parents getting divorced when I was two and a half, I don't remember them being together. Um, so it's, and they got along, I never felt unloved. So it's not like I was emotionally scarred by their divorce, but like, I would always pick up the bus from my mom's house. And so I would say at my dad's, uh, they got along so well, like they did joint custody. So I do two weeks of my mom, two weeks of my dad's, they had a deal that they would live close to one another, but my dad had to be at work at like 6am. So he dropped me off at my mom's house at like five o'clock in the morning. Well, the only thing on at five o'clock in the morning, cartoons haven't even started yet are infomercials. So my entire childhood is I'm growing up, you know, watching Bronco electric, you know, food dehydrator and, and Floby. And that was when like infomercials in the nineties, they were just, they were at their peak, but that, that was my childhood education. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, led me somewhat to where I am today. So now I'm very thankful for my, you know, for my parents and for my up, upbringing, non-traditional though it likely was. No, that's cool. I like that. What's the biggest risk you've taken so far? We made a really hard pivot at Digital Marketer a couple of years ago to basically say that, that we're going to go hard into certifications. At the time, nobody was really doing it. And if I'm being honest, like we didn't as a brand did not have the credibility to say we we're going to certify. And in doing so, we abandoned a large segment of the, you know, the product line that we were going for at that time. So we basically said, um, you know, we're, we're not going to sell you know, these types of like trainings, courses, this type of stuff, and, and basically gave up about 50% of our revenue in the hopes that this other stuff would work out. And um, thankfully it did, especially when we kind of pivoted into subscription. A lot of people don't realize how hard subscription is. I know you do, but when you say we're going to go a subscription model, you're basically trading money today for hopefully money, you know, tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. 
and, and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't, you know, fortunately for us, it worked out, but we got on the brink uh, of, of nearly running out of cash before that kind of recurring subscription uh, component picked up. Uh, didn't have to lay anybody off, but I thought, uh, I, I mean, I literally walked into an office one day, walked into our office one day thinking that I was going to have to lay a bunch of people off. And were it not for an unexpected merchant reserve release that just happened to drop in the bank account that day, um, I was planning on telling a bunch of people like, hey, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to make, you know, not going to be able to make payroll this next round. So we came close, but that pivot to subscription, I think was the, and, and subscription certification, I think was one of the most, uh, was one of the riskiest ones that we made for sure. Yeah. And why, why this? Why like helping people marketing with marketing, right? It started as a byproduct. Um, I, so I started my very first business online in 1999 from my college dorm room because I just needed to make some extra money. Uh, and it was actually uh, selling an ebook. It took a lot of business, is giving it way too much credit. I had a single page website, uh, a PayPal pay me now link, and I was selling an ebook on how to make your own baby food that I got a lactation consultant to write. And basically I got the book and I helped her build a website. So my, that was my very first business. And the first product I sold was an ebook on how to make your own uh, baby food at 19 um, years old. And I just kind of expanded. I remember, you know, I got a sale one day and then a couple more and a couple more. I was like, what if I had a hundred of these? And so by the time I graduated, I had all these different, like stupid little internet businesses. Again, if you can call it that, I didn't have any structure. There was nothing. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But back then, you know, you're talking about the early, early, early 2000s, right? Google's still kind of a science fair project. Nobody knew what marketing was. Like, what did it mean to do digital marketing or internet marketing? So given that I was one of the few people out there and I was going to conferences, people would say like, hey, what are you doing? And so the teaching and the talking about marketing really just happened sort of organically. And I remember going and speaking and some people asked me like, do you have a book? No. Do you have courses? Do you have an email list? And so the teaching of marketing just, just happened. And, and literally what I would do is I would, I would teach a class on marketing. I would release a, a book on marketing. I would sell it. I would take that money and dump it into one of the other businesses or use it to start another business. So that was my seed capital it was just, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to teach marketing, right? And that's going to be the seed capital that I used to fund my quote unquote real businesses. Um, well, fast forward to like, I think 2009, my partners and I were like, we know a lot about this marketing stuff. There's all these marketing events. They're all garbage. They're either a pitch fest or they're just like this basic, just, you know, trash content. Let's put on the best freaking marketing event that has ever been. And we called it traffic and conversion summit. You know, we invited some friends and like 250 people showed up. We're like, that's cool. That's fun. Let's do it again. And so we did it again. And then we did it for the third year. And I remember there was almost a thousand people there. I said, this might be a thing. <laughs> and so that was when we said, we should make this an actual company. And that's when we formed Digital Marketer. So I had been in the marketing, teaching, and training business for a decade before Digital Marketer formally came into being. And it's almost like I didn't want it to be a real business because I almost felt like if I had a business teaching marketing, it would invalidate my actual abilities as a marketer. Because I'm like, you know, if I go down the guru route, like the, that's when people's knowledge starts to die is what I believed. Um, it's, I don't believe it's true. I think it happens a lot, but, um, I think that's why I was so like, ah, this isn't a real thing. Um, but yeah, so now like digital marketers kind of, and, and marketing and teaching and training is what I'm probably known for. It's my day job, but, uh, I have a lot more fun and frankly, I've made a lot more, generate a lot more wealth and, uh, for myself and, uh, team doing the actual stuff than teaching it. Yeah. It's kind of funny because that that's a good sign of someone who, whose content 
on training or these types of things is worth it is the person who had the pause of, ugh, like if I become the guru person, I'm not really doing it and might be selling snake oil. I might not learn enough, right? Like every single person, and, and that's normally, so I, I was just having this debate with Jay Akunzo, who I believe you know a little bit, you know, he's just very strong in the content piece. I was like, why aren't you selling courses? Why aren't you doing a community? Why aren't you doing some of these things? And he's just like, ugh, I don't know. I want to be creating. I want to be doing that. I want to be doing these types of things. And I was like, yeah, but you know so much more than all of these other people. And it's okay to ask for money. And, and I say that as someone who has never charged for training or anything in his life with pricing and these types of things. But that's a good sign. I like that I like that you had that moment because it it, it increases my credibility for you or my, my belief in your credibility, which is kind of cool. Well, thank you. I, I do think that, that there's an important thing there also uh, with, with Jay and what I see happening right now. I remember when I first started producing courses, it was really seen as a show of lesser value. Because unfortunately, the majority of the people who are producing courses were the scammy snake oil type folks, right? And, and so when you're selling a course and it's just videos online, right? It is videos hosted on the interwebs. It's difficult to distinguish yourself from the scammy snake oil people and, and your stuff. It all kind of looks the same. It's living in the same general spot. And that's why, you know, you, you figure like with books, right? If, if you have a, a traditionally published book, there, that lends an air of credibility, and then people started realizing, you know what, self-published books are fine. Like they can be just as good if not better. We've seen the same thing happen with, with courses and, and teaching. And, and I love it's now been rebranded the creator economy or the passion economy. And, and I look at it, I'm like, this is so adorable. Like I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and it only just now, now that we've got some, you know, hipster approved term, uh, is it now okay to go out and produce funds these for it? As soon as there's funds for it, that's where, uh, that's yeah, where now it's about, I was like, I just need to eat food. So I'm going to make a yeah. freaking course. <laughs> um, so I'm that's glad the rest of the world caught up. So you've done two things. One, you've leaned more into certifications than, um, I would say just the content. Um, and then in addition to that, you went subscription, right? Which is, I'll say it's still pretty uncommon with content, right? Um, what what led to those two changes? Why those two changes? How are those two changes working out? All that kind of fun stuff. So the the lean to, to certification happened. Actually, I'll tell you, the, the, the initial pivot to, to subscription happened before certification. They, they sort of arrived, they came, they coalesced at the same time in like in practice, but we made the decision to go to certification in part because I was just tired of starting every single month at zero. It was such just a hamster wheel and, and we would have a good month and it would only set the stakes higher for the next month. And I just felt like, I just felt like it was this never ending thing. And I was like, I can't stop. It just it freaked me out. Fear. You have that weird fear where you're like, I know we'll get some, but I don't know how much and maybe it'll be zero. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is why we maybe it'll be zero as well. That anxiety. So I, I definitely empathize with that. Oh, dude. I mean, you, we would have a great month and I would celebrate for a couple of hours and then the torment, the mental anguish would begin about like, uh, now what? Like, so, you know, if, if it's the last day of the month, it's like, yeah, we crushed it. And it's like, oh no. And you know, the celebrations got shorter and the torment got longer. And so it's like, we've got to do something. And so it was like, rip the bandaid off. We're, you know, we're no longer selling anything a la carte anymore. Everything's going behind a paywall. We're going to charge one you know, flat monthly rate. Hey, Netflix is doing it. It should work out for us too. Forgetting they had a touch more funding than we did. And by a touch, I mean <laughs> all the funding and we had none. So that was the reason behind subscription certification, which interestingly enough, the subscription side didn't really work until we added the certification component. So that's where I said those two kind of coalesced. 
certifications occurred by what, by looking at what our customers were doing. So our first round of customers were entrepreneurs, practitioners. It, it was people buying it for themselves to learn marketing because they needed to do marketing for their startup, for their business. You know, they wanted to maybe improve, you know, their career, their standing, their agency. Then about 2014, 2015, really stuff started to change. We started to see it in the data a bit. And then it really happened in 2016. And that was that larger companies were purchasing our content for their employees for the purposes of team training. I never envisioned that happening. I never even thought about it as a concept. It's never anything that we pursued. But um, I remember getting an email from a general manager at uh, at Uber, oddly enough. It's like, hey, you know, I've bought like 17 subscriptions to, you know, Digital Marketer Lab for all of our different team members. It'd be really great if there was a team option and we can get all these people in and, you know, hey, do you have any test quizzes? Could we like, you know, we'd like to certify some people for this. So I never thought about the use case of our content being for training and certifying someone else and an employer wanting their people to get certified just so they knew they actually went through the dang course. Then we started offering that. We realized that really when it comes to training, there's two things at play. There's the knowledge itself and then there's the status gained from the knowledge. Some people don't realize this, like the importance of status in sales. And in marketing, right? That, that that is one of the big things that as human beings, we're trying to change about ourselves. We always want to elevate our status. And um, we didn't have anything that was status elevating about our content. You know, you went through it, you learned, maybe you got better, but there was nothing status elevating. So just by adding the certification, we realized we could add a status component as well. And so that was, those were kind of the drivers, but really it just came from looking at what our customers um, were doing. And then them just saying like, hey, we kind of need this. Do you find that, because there's a lot of these certifications, right? Like I think you can get HubSpot certified. You can get, I think, Drift Conversational Marketing certified. And yeah, like I'm not going to say anything about those two, but some of these certifications are pretty weak, I would say. And some of them are like really strong. And you're like, why are you giving this away for free, right? Like, was there ever a concept of, you know, I don't think there was because obviously the team aspect and everything you just described makes total sense. But was there ever this concept of like, let's make it, you know, let, let's add the certification and sell something else. Or what do you think of those so, courses that do the certifications for free, essentially? I generally hate free unless you have a really <laughs> clear plan. Well, I, I, hate, I hate free because people don't value free. Like in my experience, you know, how many free reports and free things have you downloaded? So I, I, I never read, right? Humans show commitment in two ways. They show commitment in their wallet and they show commitment in their calendar. So I think if you're not asking for a little bit of money or you're not asking for a little bit of time, so a free webinar, sure. If it's a free thing that to consume it is going to require some active engagement, I get it. But just saying like, let's just give this person something for free. I don't know. I think a lot of it is coming from, you know, people just having their own issues about charging for stuff. And I don't share those qualms. So there's very good strategic reasons to do free. You've written about freemium a ton. I'm, I'm, I don't need to explain this to you. Very good strategic reasons. There's lots of people giving away stuff for free and they, it's just because they got father issues or something. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but that's maybe a bit harsh. So I think with something like a certification where it's status building, I think that, that there needs to be a barrier of entry or there's no value in the certification, hmm. right? If you want to obliterate the value of a Rolex watch, start charging 250 bucks for it. Now, nobody wants it anymore. So if you're, you got to know what you're selling. You're either selling transformation or you're selling identity reinforcement. That's it. That's all anybody is ever selling. 
transformation or identity reinforcement. If you're selling transformation, you need to be very clear on what the pain is that somebody is experiencing and what their desired after state is. So if they're experiencing a pain and they want a desired after state, now you're selling transformation. Okay, what's the value in moving them from here to there? If you're not charging for it, then they're not going to believe it. It's why you know medicine tastes bad. Medicine has a greater impact if it tastes bad. If, if all medicine tastes delicious, we're like, this doesn't work. It tastes like grape juice, right? So mm. these things, we know intuitively, things need to be hard if they're going to work. We just know that on the identity reinforcement side, Again, if, if what I'm selling is identity reinforcement, increased status. I want to tell a better story about myself. I like this aspect. I want this there. Um, Superhuman, the email app. They're selling identity reinforcement. No, nobody like, I, I mean, yes, there's an aspect of greater email efficiency, but in general, it's I perceive myself to be a highly organized person. And that's why you've got that, you know, powered by superhuman thing that people leave in even though they don't have to, right? Because yeah. it's, it's status, it's identity reinforcement. But again, superhuman doesn't work if it's free. Now everybody can get it. So I think that the, the challenge with certifications and free ones is just that. And I do think that because there has been such a glut of certifications, you know, when we first did it, we were among the first. Uh, and it was like, we've got a certification nobody else does. So take ours. Interestingly, like I'll, I'll tell here, like what we did is we pulled all of our certifications out of our subscription program. So what we did, we put them in initially because it made it work. Now we're saying this is devaluing them. We're pulling them out. We're actually going to be hosting and running all of our subscriptions, even through a different brand than digital marketer. It, it'll be oh, wow. kind of a co-branded type thing. But because subscriptions have, it's like anything else, marketers ruin everything. But because now um, certifications have been so kind of bastardized and, you know, mineralized, um, we're completely going to, you know, change the, the game, uproot everything we had done. Because, yeah, I think you're right. I think at this point, most of them are just, you know, here's, here's your participation trophy. Good luck. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I think a lot of brands, they look at it as, oh, we can... I don't know. People put it in their LinkedIn profiles, right? Like people do that, that kind of thing. And, and probably the quality, I'm sure there are free, really high quality certifications, but the quality bar is a little more generalized, right? Um, and so it's it's been interesting to see what like Reforge has done. I think Reforge, yeah. they're, they're relatively expensive certification, I would say, in the, in, in the space. They probably could charge more. You could probably charge more. But, you know, the market is is kind of free or um, this kind of smattering of prices. My thing with certifications, though, are you – do I have to re-up my certification kind of like a medical license? Is, have you guys thought of it that way? Or is it more just like here's this course, here's this certification, and we'll have other courses that are maybe more specific or verticalized, but, you know, you kind of have it for life. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think you got to re-up or there's no value. So ours are good for a year and then you got to come back and take the next version. And depending on the level that you bought at, you could take the next version or some type of continuing education for free. Not free, you paid for it just before. Um, or, you know, you, you pay a reduced rate to take the updated version again. But yeah, I think you have to come back in, especially in an area like marketing changes so fast. So um, yeah, I, I think if, if if there isn't that update concept, if if the subscription doesn't expire, if it's like, yeah, you're certified for 2019 and people could be like on your badge, it's like, oh, that was two years oh, ago. Like then it's more again, like we can't stop people. Like I'm not going to go in there. If somebody paid for something, I'm not going to go in there and say, you don't have that anymore. You know, like a university wouldn't go into somebody's house and be like, it's been 10 years and we think you're an idiot. So we're going to take the diploma off your wall, <laughs> you know? Because you said some stupid Great stuff concept, on Twitter. Man. We'd all lose our diplomas probably. But yeah, yeah. so we're not going to take something that somebody you know, rightfully paid for and earned. But I do think it's good to build some 
negative incentives, if you will, to continue to display something uh, that is that may not be as true as it once was. So I think dating of subscriptions is important. And, and ha yeah, having them go in and re-up is important. I'll also say, by the way, yeah, uh, Brian, Balfour, and what they're doing at Reforge, I think they've got the model going and we're, we're learning heavily from what they're doing. They want to do completely the opposite, which is a great strategy. If, if everybody's doing something, don't try to do it a little bit better. Just invert it and flip it on its head. So they've said, like, we're not going to offer any subscription. I keep saying subscription, certification. They're saying we're not going to offer any certification. I understand why they're doing it. I would be interested to see if they do eventually add that into the program because whether or not they feel it's necessary, even if they think it's dumb, and it kind of is, it's all dumb, right? But everything's all kind of dumb, right? If you get right down to it, right? I believe that their people would value it. And I think that they would be well served, especially as their program gets elevated in brand of somebody going through and saying, I went through this and look, here's my badge. I already treat Reforge like as that. Like if they're like, oh, I went through Reforge, they're probably guaranteed to get an interview. Um, at least when we see them, like in terms of like marketers and things like that. So that's, that's super interesting. La last question on this. When you look at different companies, like this is your business, the, you know, subscription training and, and kind of certifications is, is is part of the core, at least of this this part of your business. Should other brands do certifications? Like, should we have a pricing certification? You know, assuming we do really really good content and all that kind of fun stuff. Like, what do you what do you think of like brands where it's not core to their business doing this? I don't think software brands. I think if you sell software or products, I would look to joint venture with a training company to do it. I know that sounds self serving, but the reality is, is nobody wants to learn how to shoot a jump shot from Spalding. They make basketballs. But um, I, I, I believe consumers, uh, we compartmentalize. And it's like, yeah, that's the tool. And, and I'm going to learn how to use the tool over here. And, and so I think that it's good to align. But then what it's more seen as is it's more seen as passive, not, not passive. It's more seen as like that third-party recommendation, that, that dubbing. Also, training is a skill. Like we have instructional designers on our team who their job is That's building training and building content. And so, you know, if, if you're drift and you're going to hire Mark Killens, who has that skill to go and build out these certifications, I have no doubt that Mark, Mark's a pro. Mark's going to build a phenomenal, um, you know, certification over there. But for a lot of companies who are like, yeah, we're just going to have our content marketing person shoot some videos, you know, if, if they're not getting into what's the learning objectives and how are we going to do test banks and those kind of things, then just call it what it is. Like, you know, it's an engagement device. It's a tool. Uh, you can call it a certification. That's fine. It's not going to hurt my feelings, but I don't believe it's going to be something that is going to be seen as truly status elevating in the industry. Uh, and if that's what you want, then I would align with another brand that's actively doing certification. That's cool. So digital marketer certifications, third party coming soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be at a different brand than digital marketer, but closely associated with, we, we just acquired a company actually that has been doing uh, marketing certifications way longer than we have. And uh, so we, I can't announce it yet, but yeah, we did an acquisition okay. and I needed to, it, it's so frustrating, like because certifications have been so, you know, drug through the mud, oh, we're yeah. literally having to acquire another company to move our assets over to this company. Cause I think it's that important to differentiate just general training from formalized certification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's take a huge step back. So you've seen a lot of things in marketing. I feel like baby food ebooks have worked, didn't work. Now they work again on some level, I feel. Um, yeah. You've seen a lot of like tactics. I think what's interesting is that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you talk about, you know, what's, what's kind of old is new and some of these new things, they do work, but 
maybe not the right time. Like, tell us a little bit about like the balance of like what's working, what's not, you know, in the world of marketing. Well, I think a lot of marketers, a lot of people who are doing marketing are, are, are really product people, especially the people who are talking about a lot of this stuff and talking about marketing trends. And so what I see happening a lot is they, they mistake a particular medium of delivery or a particular channel in marketing for a business model, right? So <laughs> for example, newsletters, email newsletters. One of the very, I think it was the very first, it, it, it'll probably be up there on um, the Wayback Machine somewhere, but the, I think the very first ebook course product that I ever produced on marketing was called The Great Easing Experiment. And it was all about how to do email newsletters. <laughs> and man, this was back in 2001. Kicking it old school. I wrote stuff on how to do email newsletters. And this is when email newsletters were just all the rage. It's like, what? You can have like a magazine in email? That's what we called them e-zines back then. And then they, be, they went totally out of fashion. It's like, oh, this is beyond passe. You don't do that. Why, why on earth would you send content uh, out in an email? That's stupid. Um, you can send an email to a link, but you need to, that needs to go to your blog. That way you can get um, you know search and all these other things. It's like, oh, that's dumb. Just post it on social. And, and everything becomes cyclical. And the mistake is when people decide that like, oh, the model is the medium or the model is the channel, then that's when they get stuck and that's when they get pigeonholed. I think as marketers, we need to define our, our businesses. We need to define our, our work around the audiences that we serve and just say, where are they? And what do they want to receive? And not take all of our cues from what marketing Twitter and VC Twitter and what uh, e-com Twitter is, is saying is cool. It's interesting to me that everybody is saying like, oh wow, this, there's this amazing email renaissance. It never stopped. Yeah. It just got uncool. So I always tell people like, don't focus so much on, on the trends with respect to different channels and things like that, because you don't have to be first. You know, we were very late on Facebook. We were very late on a lot of these different like social channels. It didn't matter. The audience, there was more people there and we got there and we kind of knew what we were doing. Focus instead on the message. Tell markers all the time, like, what is your dang message? Because a good message can be put in almost any channel and it's generally going to work. A good message can be put uh, on a terrible, ugly, funky looking website and it's generally going to, to work. So that's the thing that I keep coming back to is as marketers, we need to remember that the message is preeminent over everything else. It's preeminent over, you know, your ability to, you know, buy low cost ads. It's preeminent over your ability to optimize a landing page. It's preeminent over, over all of that. I think just behind message is your ability to uh, optimize uh, order values as quickly as possible, especially if you're bootstrapped. But those are the two things that we focus on, right? What is our big idea? You know, what's the message? Um, and then how do we maximize our average order value? Ideally immediate. I don't care about lifetime. I can't wait a lifetime. You know, what's that 30, 60, 90 day customer value so that I can afford to go out there and acquire more than my competitor? Those are the two things that I just keep coming back to again and again and again. And if I keep those in mind, I say, all right, let's try some of these different channels, then it has a way of working. And how do you, I know it's a really broad topic, like that message, that hook, like what's the anatomy of a good one? Yeah, we, we've got a formula for a, a big idea where we basically say, we need to know what the core desire is of our market, right? And so again, going back to like what I said before, you're either selling transformation or identity reinforcement. So getting really crystal clear on what is the core desire. And there's lots of frameworks for that, whether you're talking about jobs to be done, you know, tons of different frameworks, positioning statements, but like just getting clear on this is what our market wants, right? This is the, this is the thing that they want the most. So 
getting clarity on the core desire. The mistake that everybody makes though, is they write messaging where it's like, we have a product that will get you this core desire. That's what everybody does, right? Like figure out the job done, state that you can get them that result. The problem is everybody's doing that. So they don't believe you. And the reality is, is that if somebody wants something, guess what? That means they don't have it. All right. They want something, they don't have it, but it probably means that they didn't just start wanting it today, which means they've tried before and failed to get that core desire. That means they're approaching a little bit jaded, right? So any market that's worth being in, you got to know you've got a market with a core desire. They've wanted it for a while. They've tried other things. It hasn't worked. So simply understanding the core desire of your audience while critical, while essential is not enough. Um, unless you're entering a brand new market with truly brand new technology and all this other stuff. But 99 times out of 100, you're selling the same dang thing, solving the same solution that all your competitors are, especially if you're in SaaS, by the way. I mean, if you're in SaaS, like, come on, what are you doing that's truly new? So what we add to it is the happening. Um, so we've got to have a core desire and then there must be a happening. And so the happening is essentially what happened that makes, that creates a new reality wherein this person can achieve their core desire. So to me, the framework for a big idea is I want to be able to go up to somebody and say to my customer, I want to go up to and say, hey, you won't believe what happened, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, ideal client. Oh my God, what happened? Well, you know how you always wanted this insert core desire? Well, you know, I know in the past, like you probably tried this, probably tried this and it didn't work. Well, here's, let me tell you what happened because of this thing that happened. There's now a new path to achieving that. And I think that that the, the, the discovery of the happening whether it's truly a new discovery, something new happened out in the world, whether you truly invented something new that nobody else has, a new framework, a new name for something, um, a new perspective, um, taking a stand, like creating a new happening um, or discovering a new happening. I think that that is the primary job of, you know, I think it's the primary job of the marketer. I'll give you an example of somebody who is great at this. I, I don't even think realizes how good he was and still is at it. Our buddy, Dave Gerhardt, when they were at, you know, I think when Drift every month was releasing a new feature, you know, they were, they were coming out with a, and maybe they're still doing this, but that new feature created a new happening. Um, and I remember one month they did like May is no forms month, right? They declared that like, this is the month, like, and the basic idea is like, Hey, you know how you want more leads, but you know, the reality is, is the old school methods aren't working right. You get a lot of fake email addresses, opt-in rates are down, engagement rates are lower. Um, well, uh, something happened at Drift. We came up with a way to communicate, like to, to capture and engage with more leads faster, doing a totally new method that you haven't tried before, right? That's a happening. So you got to first know what the core desire is. You have to know that because if you just say this, this crazy thing happened, they're like, they might be interested and engaged, but it's merely entertainment if you don't connect the happening to the core desire. So we got to know the core desire. We got to find the happening. Now entertainment becomes engagement, which becomes bonding. If now you can entertain me and engage me and then connect the thing that happened to that. Now I'm, you know, you're their guide, which is the ideal position to be in. So I think that is really the structure of finding the hook. That's how we make the old new again. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's amazing if you look around at the world and you just see the things that are happening, figure out the connections that can be made. You know, this company over here did this survey and discovered this new thing, creating new frameworks, releasing new features. It can't just be like, we can now do this thing. It's like this thing that we're doing allows you to achieve this thing that you've always wanted, but don't have in this new way. That's what I mean when I talk about it happening. 
one, knowledge bombs. Lots of knowledge bombs there. The thing that I'm realizing is I think that people are missing that warrant. They're missing the thing that connects all of that because they are either like, hey, this happening happened or hey, this core desire, but they're not connecting the two. And, the, and I think that the connection is where the power is because it helps you as I would imagine a buyer. And when I think of the things I bought or at least things I've engaged on, like it's those things where it all connected the dots and I went, oh. Like apart from referrals or word of mouth or these types of things, like that's the marketing that's actually worked on me. And I tend to, as I'm sure you are, be, you know, kind of uh, weary of marketing because you kind of know what's going on, which is super interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm a snob. Uh, I'll admit it. <laughs> it isn't really, you see a lot of stuff talking about like movements and positioning and creating a category. Category creation is simply a way of creating a happening. This thing happened. There's this new category, you know, that was created. Rothy's did this. Uh, you, you familiar with Rothy's? Uh, the shoe, Is it the shoe company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I mean, there's these shoes. My wife must own, you know, at least yeah, a few dozen pairs. So many of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not exaggerating, right? Not exaggerating the number. And they're they're these like primarily they're, they're flats that are made out of um, recycled water bottles. And um, so Rothy's whole thing is what's the core desire, right? I want to be fashionable, but I also care about the environment, right? So that's kind of the core desire is I I want to be fashion forward, but I care about the environment. So how do I show this? So like, we've got the shoe that's made out of water bottles. You should buy it. Okay, cool. That works for a bit, but then they need to create some additional movements, some additional happenings. So they came, you know, really anchored onto this sustainable fashion movement. They're like, Hey, sustainable fashion is a thing. If you create a category, if you create a movement, you know, what happened? HubSpot did this. What happened? Inbound marketing is now a thing, you know, like this thing happened. There were lots of brands that were built. Uh, think about Zoom. What happened? COVID. So now you got to do this. But Zoom can't still keep selling on that. Like that happened and, and like all happenings, all things that are novel, they eventually get old. You got to come up with a new one. Marketers hate to hear this because it means that their job is never over. You know, you don't just get to come up with one big idea, one hook, and you're kind of done. You got to keep coming up with them. And the world doesn't always offer them to you on a silver platter like, you know, the world did like COVID did for Zoom. Sometimes you got to go out there and create it. And the best marketers can create a big idea from scratch. Yeah. Let's, let's talk for a second. Cause I think this is really important too. Like what are the, some, some of the best deployments of messaging, right? Like what are some of the things, you know, we mentioned newsletters, we mentioned eBooks, old, new, old, old, new again. Like what are some of the best deployments that you think people are either being way too novel about, like they're overcomplicating it versus the things that like they've moved on from that they shouldn't have moved on from because they're still producing. So are you, are you talking specifically to channels? Yeah. Like, like channels like, basically. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so nothing is better than email <laughs> still. Um, email is still the best channel that drives more engagement um, than anything else, you know, followed closely behind some type of pixeled audience retargeting. So having, having your ad show up in social, the key is aligning all of these things together. So what I see marketers doing is we are guilty of this a lot of times, right? As your company grows and teams get siloed, uh, we'll be posting stuff on, you know, our social channels that is different from what our different retargeted audiences are seeing, which is misaligned from what's going out via email. So the key is like mirroring your messaging, right? So what you're sending out via email, the people you're sending that email to, you can create that list as a custom audience if you don't already have it in Google and Facebook. So not only are they seeing that email, but they're also seeing, uh, you know, seeing your ads on all the different social channels and all the different websites. And, and during, by the way, that like three to seven day period, like major ramp up on the frequency. 
Marketers dramatically underestimate the frequency that is required to truly have a message breakthrough. And, and they'll have like one or two people saying like, I'm sick of seeing your ads all over the place. That's when you know you've almost had enough frequency. Okay. Especially when your friends are like, dude, I'm seeing your ad all over the place. Like, Awesome. Don't click on it because then you cost me money, <laughs> but stop complaining. But this is no different than the big mass media companies understood this when they're like, we're going to produce a campaign and there's going to be radio spots and there's going to be billboards and there's going to be TV commercials. And a lot of digital marketers, especially a lot of growth people, because they want to track everything back to its source, they've gotten away from that. And I think most marketers would be well served to throw attribution out the window and just say, we're going to produce a campaign. We're going to have a budget. We'll stack rank our spend, not based on ROI, because you don't freaking know what that ROI is anyway. How are you going to, how does this channel get credit versus that one? Come on. Everything builds everything else. So don't stack rank based on that. Stack rank based on uh, how quickly did it return. So what was the return on ad spend? That means you can just put it to work faster, right? That's how you build out your channels. But the key is to be everywhere all at once in a burst right? Like a seven at most 14 day burst. You will not maintain attention energy longer than that. I don't care who you are, or what you're doing. Generally a seven day burst across all channels, fully aligned. And then the cool thing is, is you can kind of hold off for a while, follow up with those people who engaged, come back and do it 30 days later. Uh, that's what we found is the most effective way to do it. So it's not any one channel. It's you got to be everywhere. Yeah. With attribution, it oftentimes gets into an all or nothing mindset which is like, you're not going to, unless you are spending a ton and you're going to take the time to do this, you're not going to create a sophisticated attribution model that can do the things you said. So they're like, well, you know, we shouldn't do it because we can't do that. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like it's okay to have attribution at the beginning and the end. Right. It's not, you know, it's not perfect. You're not going to know everything that happened in the middle, but it'll at least still get you that. Was this campaign viable? And we can measure that over the next six months, theoretically. I'm not saying throw attribution out the windows and don't measure anything. Yeah, if yeah, you heard just that. Don't let it, don't let it like speed bump you. Be, just like, yeah, yeah, don't let it say, because we don't know, we should do nothing. Exactly. Right. Keep in mind, this idea of knowing stuff is fairly new. You know, marketers in the past used to just have to like be good at their jobs, right? You know, yeah. place bets. And so we know more than we did before. So use it to inform. But at the end of the day, you can't say, oh, because this one's in an 80% ROI, like kill it and put all of it in this one. No, you don't realize that 80% ROI one is the reason that other campaign has 140% ROI. Mm -hmm. And they want to cut all this stuff back and they wonder, why did everything all of a sudden stop working? We doubled down on what was working. Oh, what was working was everywhere. Being everywhere, you know, seeing it all over the place. You know, I'm driving down the road, I'm hearing the ad, I'm seeing the billboard. Mm -hmm. I, I pick up the phone, I make the call. What got the credit? Ah, yeah. be everywhere. All right, my friend, we're nearing the end here. Any, any last, any last words? Where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, obviously digitalmarketer.com is uh, where we talk marketing stuff. Uh, I will say I'm very excited about uh, a totally new project that we're doing that is related to marketing, but is more for uh, all the scale-ups up there. So all my accidental entrepreneurs. So, you know, if you're a VC-backed, VC-funded company, probably not for you. Not that I don't love you um, and you're still welcome to come and check it out, but we're looking at putting up a bootstrap accelerator, uh, a scale-up accelerator. So companies who are kind of beyond traction at startup, it's still super early. We have nothing figured out yet, but uh, scalable.co. I would love it if people would check that out, get on the list. And, um, and if you are one of those accidental entrepreneurs caught in the messy middle, hopefully we can help you out a little bit. No, it's cool, man. Yeah, let me know how I can help. That sounds. I awesome. will do that. Yeah, that you will really be cool. you will be asked to help. I can I can assure you of that. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate this, man. Thanks for having me. 
huge shout out to Ryan for lending his time for the podcast. With his help, we now have what it takes to be a stellar marketer. We talked about the accidental entrepreneur, the desire for elevated status, selling information or identity reinforcement, the cyclical nature of marketing, and of course, the frequency required for messaging breakthrough. Want some swag? Well, if you leave us a five-star review of this podcast and send us a screenshot to pc at propwell.com, I'll make sure that you get a copy of Ryan's book. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Profilewell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 